1: I also work with gender-questioning teenagers, and I facilitated support meetings for families and individuals who've been impacted by gender issues.
0: We're curious about the concept of gender and how it's unfolding in the wider
1: culture. Join us as we look at gender through a wider lens.
0: Dr. Leonore Tiefer is a native New Yorker and an author, educator, feminist, researcher, psychologist, and activist whose work focuses on sexuality. She was a clinical associate professor of psychiatry at the NYU School of Medicine from 1981 to 2018. She's been elected office and received honors from major US and international sexology and feminist psychology organizations, such as the International Academy of Sex Research and the Association for Women in Psychology. Today, Leonore tells us about getting her PhD from UC Berkeley in 1969. As a sexologist, she was studying hormones and sexual behavior in rats. When she got wind of the women's revolution taking place right outside her lab, she began a deep dive into feminist readings. Thinking about the cultural and social aspects of sexuality completely changed her paradigm. She came to believe that observing rat behavior in a lab could never really help us understand how humans think about our own sexual experiences. So she changed the direction of her work completely and eventually directed the campaign for a new view of women's sexual problems, which meant to challenge sexual medicalization and big pharma trends. That was between 2000 and 2016. The new view was a grassroots campaign focused on so-called female sexual dysfunction and the growing industry of cosmetogynecology. In 2011, the award-winning documentary on this subject called Orgasm, Inc., featured Dr. Tifer's work, and tracked one drug company's race to develop the first female Viagra. Leonore is also the author of hundreds of research and theoretical papers and book reviews, and she's also authored several books, including Sex is Not a Natural Act, which we talk about today. She's recently taken a keen interest in pediatric gender medicine, which of course has some familiar elements for Dr. Tiefer, namely that the financial interests of drug companies – overzealous physicians, well-meaning social justice elements, and eager patients themselves can create a perfect storm for ethically questionable medicine. You may notice that we actually had a hard time with Dr. Tiefer's internet connection, and our editing team did the best they could with our audio. Things do clear up towards the middle of the interview, though, so we hope it doesn't become too distracting. Um, Dr. Tiefer's insights are really valuable. She was a wealth of knowledge, and she brings this very interesting human and yet analytical lens to the field of sexology. So we're actually hoping to have her back on since there was so much to discuss. Unfortunately, some really good bits of the interview had to get cut out altogether because of sound quality, but we really just kind of barely scratched the surface here. So hopefully this will be accompanied by another interview in the future. But for now, here's our first discussion with Dr. Leonor Tiefer. Hi,
1: Stella. Hi, Sasha. How are you? I'm great. We have the lovely Leonor Tyfer. Have I pronounced your name right, Leonor? Tifer. Tiefer, Leonore Tifer, Tyfer, Leonore Tyfer, who is a, a kind of a a major presence for me, anyway, um, in our understanding of of so many elements of this of this gender issue. In ways that I had never seen, until I started hearing you speak, Leonore, and reading reading you, I realised, oh my God, there's so many dots to be joined. And I've really become really interested in your take on an awful lot of things to do with how we came to be here in 2022
2: and this whole gender. So where did it all begin, Leonore? Well, you you flatter me, Stella. I'll just return the flattery. I mean, I think you guys are doing amazing work and uh, really making a difference. And I've listened to so many of these podcasts and learned a lot. So if I can add my two cents and anyone will benefit, that's a great thrill for me. Oh, thank you. Thank you, Leonore. So, I mean, I'll just tell my story. I'll give you the abbreviated version. So I got my PhD in 1969 in Berkeley, which was before the women's movement. And I was in the psychology department and my major professor was Frank Beach. And I was doing my work on animal sexuality, hormones and animal sexuality. I did my dissertation on hamsters. But I know hamsters and I know rats. I never did any work with mice. (laughs) Um, But it was a pre-feminist time. So I, for example, was not hired to do any of the sex research. I wasn't paid. Only boys could do that in graduate school. So I go back a long, long way. So I get the PhD in animal sex research. And my thinking at the time is that we're building a big edifice of understanding sexuality. All the bricks are going to come together, and uh, hamsters are a little brick, you know, and my research is a little, a little shred of the little brick. And, and that was my thinking. You know, we're all part of the great animal kingdom, and somehow it's all going to fit together. I didn't know about, and really there wasn't much being talked about, uh, the history of sexology or, you know, anything about politics at the time. It was science, science, science. So I get the PhD and I get a job and I have my own little laboratory and I'm doing research on rats and and that's 1970, 71. And in 1972, um, I, ha- I had, you know, this epiphany. a a true religious moment when I was the only woman in in a 27-person psychology department and another woman joined the department. She came from Chicago. She was a lesbian, first lesbian I really had known. I mean, there I was with a PhD in psychology, and there I was so ignorant. So she says, Leonore, her name was Pam, Leonore, do you know there's a revolution going on out there? And I said, Pam, I'm very busy here. I have graduate students in a laboratory and a lot of classes to teach. Uh, just kind of make it short and tell me about the revolution. So you know, it was it wasn't exactly overnight, but within you know a few months, I had read these pamphlets, you know, and these brochures, and uh, and I was what can i say the scales fell from my eyes and i realized there was a word a word called sexism and that it applied to so much of what i knew so i became a feminist and i taught a uh, psych of women and i and i kind of recanted my dissertation and i i stopped doing animal research i felt like there was no big picture anymore <sighs> Can I ask
0: what were the concepts that you came across that created this scales falling falling from your eyes moment? Like, and and how was that contraindicated with your animal research? I'm just curious about why did you feel like you had to make this huge
2: pivot? It didn't make sense to me anymore. I, you know, I had undergone a paradigm shift, a personal paradigm shift, and the factors that I saw. That were relevant to women's sexuality, since now I had somehow put women at the center of the analysis, something I had never thought of before. The factors were all social, cultural, and historical. And I felt, you know, I could study rats until the end of time, and I would never understand anything about lingerie, you know, or poetry, or any of the things that seemed to matter. To women. And I wouldn't understand, obviously, about sexism and, and depression and internalized depression and so on. So it, it just didn't make any sense to be studying, you know, the micro realities of hormones and prenatal injections in, in rats. Wow. So keep going. You had this epiphany and the, the, the scales fell from your eyes. Right. So then the question was, well, now I was about uh, 32 years old, or I was about 30 years old. And I thought, well, now what am I supposed to do with the rest of my life? I have a PhD, I have a whole bunch of publications, you know, in animal sex research. I belong to these organizations, I subscribe to these journals, what am I supposed to do? And I, you know, it was a crisis of the soul, right? Should I go to medical school? Should I, what should I do? And I decided, you know, I was self-employed. It's not self-employed, but I had no additional money. I come from a a relatively lower class background. I always knew I had to support myself. And so the idea of jettisoning, uh, you know, my entire PhD training, I I just didn't make any sense. Uh, I I didn't know where I'd get the money to go to medical school. And I didn't think I had the brains for organic chemistry. So... I figured I'd stay in uh, sexology, but I would move to human beings instead of animals. So I got retrained briefly, uh, and then later on, I got a second uh, graduate degree in clinical psychology. Uh, and base, and you know, I gradually I moved over from the focus on animals to the focus on on people. Could I just ask, you know, this move from the hamsters to to the women, was it kind
1: of like there was no depth or emotional emotional, uh, kind of addition in the hamster and you thought we're missing a huge amount
2: on female sexuality? Is that what it was? The emotion was part of it, but it was also the social rules, the social context. I thought women experience their sexuality because of their social context, how they were raised, their religion, their, you know, what, where are they living, their generation? Is it the 20th century or is it the 15th century? You know, am I, am I Cleopatra or what's going on here? So I, I, that was the part that was missing, the social science.
0: Oh, because human beings have culture and animals don't. So you studying rats in a lab doesn't tell us much about how human sexuality interacts with human culture.
2: Right. So I, I re-specialized I, um, and I I began to do sex therapy, which is how I made a living uh, for the subsequent uh, 30, 40 years. Uh, I taught medical students about human sexuality. I taught nursing students. And I got employed first in a Department of Psychiatry and then in Departments of Urology uh, as a psychologist doing interviews on patients with sexual dysfunctions. So I kind of moved into the area of specialization within sexology that I guess we'd call sexual dysfunction. and But of course I'm a feminist, right? And I'm belonging to all these feminist organizations and I'm reading all these feminist articles and books and journals. And so I'm taking a very um, skeptical look at the whole area of diagnosis, um, of... Um, I don't know, power relations within uh, marriages that are creating uh, sexual problems, uh, doctor-patient relationships. You know, I'm, I'm in, embedded in all of this, but as a feminist, I'm like looking at it like an anthropologist. So, uh, you know, I became a little skitzy, I think, um, doing the work during the day and criticizing the work you know, at conferences and in my reading. Um, where, where did you zero in? Yeah, keep going. Well, I'm just saying that kind of skepticism, of course, I'm a psychologist, Stella. So, you know, you're a psychologist 24-7 if you're a psychologist and you're a psychologist on yourself all the time. So, you know, I have thought a lot about why being an insider outsider was a a comfortable space for me. Um, and But it was. I don't need to, to uh, un, unzip my entire personality here, but it was comfortable for me to be both a participant and an observer. And that's what I continued to do. And as the field, the industry, I will say, of sexual dysfunction uh, began to grow in the 90s, Um, well, really in the 80s, and then in the 90s, and then with the approval of Viagra in 1998, it exploded into the public sphere. I found that by that time, I really had quite a massive understanding of this whole situation, and I also had this insider feeling, you know, which gave me compassion for the patients uh, really compassion for the, for the doctors and the providers also, but also a real skeptical outlook on the larger systems that were at work having to do with, you know, the pharmaceutical industry, changes in the business of medicine, uh, regulatory structures, government, and, and so on. Uh, So that's what I did, and, you know, by the time uh, Viagra was approved in 98, I'd been working in urology departments by that time, you know, for 15 years. I had a lot of seniority in sexology, and so I decided that I would convene a, a, a critical organization. You guys know about critical organizations and their role, So I would convene this thing that I called a new view of women's sexuality, for lack of anything more interesting to call it, Um, and that I would try to criticize the medicalization of sexual dysfunction, both as a scholar and as an activist. And I kept that up for a number of years. Until 2016, when I ended this campaign, this scholar activist. So the activities of the campaign were very varied. And uh, the longer we were at it, the better we got at it. And uh, in addition to our publications and street demonstrations and electronic stuff, we held conferences. Um, New View campaign.org tells the story. Wow. And what was your main issue with the medicalization of sexual dysfunction? The the problem has to do with norms. Fundamentally, it has to do with with norms because the diagnostic nomenclature, the list of sexual dysfunctions, what is a sexual dysfunction? That's what we call diagnostic nomenclature. You have to have some idea of what's normal sexual function. So what's in the diagnostic no- nomenclature? Uh, orgasm problems, erection problems, ejaculation problems, desire problems. And the whole um, categorization, classification, which is a, a major activity in medicine, seemed, from a feminist point of view, to be um, not only wrong, but but massively counterproductive. So that instead of facilitating a good, happy, robust sexual life for women— the idea that, well, no, no, there's a normal way to do it and a normal amount of it to have, that seemed counterproductive. So the challenge uh, of was, was to undermine, really, this whole medicalization. You don't have a problem. You don't need drugs. You need education. Uh, self-education, public education, Uh, so that was the perspective.
0: You know, I remember when I was in, I think I must have been an undergraduate psychology student at the time, and I remember learning, this may not have even been in school, I might have just learned it somewhere else, but I remember learning that most women do not have vaginal orgasms. And that most women experience clitoral orgasms much more readily. And I remember feeling like that was such a revelation because my whole conception of what I thought sex was supposed to be, and I was a really late bloomer, so I hadn't even had sex at this point. But I remember my whole concept was that two people are supposed to have penetrative sex and then both people are supposed to have an orgasm. And I suspected that like, this wouldn't necessarily be the case for myself. And I thought, okay, and maybe I'm just this one bizarre oddball person that doesn't think this is going to work for me. So I think this whole idea of questioning what are the norms and what is considered like normal sex and, and even how much sex you're supposed to have, like this is really important. And so Within the diagnostic criteria that you were looking at at the time for sexual dysfunction, you realized that there was a gap between what this diagnosis says and what most normal human relationships are like. Or like, where did you piece it together? Was it mostly from your feminist studies or was it also
2: based on just knowing women and experience and like all of it put together? You know, this is where you and I look at the world differently because that's a very clinical question and it's a sort of humanistic question where did you get these ideas from knowing women and and in fact i'm i come at this much more as an intellectual and my sense was that this was a structural problem that these diagnoses were coming from a um false understanding of research and history. And, you know, there were plenty of people, Sasha, who were doing research on real women and real women's real orgasms or non-orgasms or clitorises or experiences or whatever. I felt I didn't need to do that. What I felt I was good at was saying, you know, the emperor has no clothes here. This whole system was created um, falsely, and going back into the literature, trying to find the basis of the diagnostic nomenclature, and in fact, showing
0: that it was that it was invalid,
2: that it was invalid.
0: this kind of sounds like Bob Ostertag's position as well, which is, I don't know if I'm right, Leonore, but there's there's a postmodern flair in this, which is like, where do we actually get These ideas in the first place, there is no solid ground on which to base these ideas. Um, Who decides what's normal? Like those, those ideas do come from a kind of postmodern place where some feminist analysis
2: comes from, right? And I was, I was certainly swimming in that water in the nineties. I don't, I don't feel a kinship with the postmodern position that there's no truth, no objectivity, no solid ground. The critique of science has been going on now for several decades, and to lump it all under postmodernism is to give, I think, too much credit to the perspective that really annihilates all of science. It's all language. You know, there's no reality out there. Science is, is a waste of time. I don't come from that at all.
0: We hope you're enjoying this episode of our podcast. We work very hard to maintain high quality content for this show, and we're grateful to Rhyme and Genspect for supporting us.
1: Rhyme, or Rethink Identity Medicine Ethics, is a nonprofit organization dedicated to improving long term care for gender variant individuals. Visit RethinkIME.org to learn more. And Genspect is an
0: international alliance of parents and professional groups whose aim is to advocate for
1: parents of gender-questioning children and young people. If you'd like to become a patron, you'll have access to weekly transcripts and special Q&As, and you can join our listener community. Now back to the show.
0: Okay, so then Leonor, you were featured in a really interesting film called *Orgasm Inc*. Tell us about
2: that. This this was uh, amazing. It was it taught me so much, really. Liz Kanner uh, had gotten uh, a kind of freelance job making erotic films to be used by a small uh, pharmaceutical startup that was making a drug that was supposed to help women's sexuality. And as she was more and more involved in this company, she realized that this entire thing uh, had a lot of problems. It was not really a very feminist uh, endeavor. So she started looking around and she found her way to me, since I was kind of the chief critic of this uh, pharmaceutical um, tsunami that was coming at at sexuality. And she followed me around for several years and filmed uh, speeches and lectures, rallies, fundraisers, a lot of fundraisers. Uh, And the climax of of Orgasm, Inc. took place at the Food and Drug Administration uh, hearing that was evaluating the first drug. Well, not really the first drug. The first drug kind of went down the tubes without a hearing. But the second drug that was being considered for um, female sexual dysfunction, particularly for desire problems, a central nervous system drug named flibanserin, and uh, she filmed that hearing, and it was a a remarkably dramatic uh, situation. They ultimately voted against the drug. That was in 2010. Her film comes out in 2011, and it's a kind of milestone in the history of of um, this medicalization of of female sexuality. But of course, what happened in 2015? That drug was in fact approved by the FDA, and I mean there are so many strands to this story. You know, the regulatory system and so on. But it seems that uh, changes have occurred over the last 10 or 20 years that the federal government calls patient friendly, we might call insufficient regulation. Uh, and as a consequence, a lot of lobbying by the manufacturers of this drug argued wait a minute, wait a minute, men have drugs, women should have drugs too, it's gender inequity. So all of a sudden, the politics of gender, I mean, does that ring a bell, ladies? The politics of gender interfered with what was supposed to be an objective scientific uh, situation. So the, the quality of the drug had not improved. It hadn't helped any more women have any satisfactory lives. What they did was change the endpoints, right? They fiddled around with the qualifications to get a drug approved. And that's symptomatic of so many things that are going on in in the wider world. So the very drug that Liz Canner's film... Celebrates going down the tubes is now alive and well and, and available for your doctor to write a prescription. So, Leonor, what
0: was this drug supposed to be able to do for people who for women who took it?
2: It was um, it was being trialed. It was it was being uh, tested uh, for low sexual desire, inhibited sexual desire. Uh, and the idea would be that you had to take it daily, indefinitely. This is a central nervous system drug. It actually had failed as a uh, antidepressant, and they brought it back. They didn't really know how it worked. It, presumably it affected uh, serotonin, norepinephrine, you know, neurotransmitters in the brain, but nobody really knows how sexual desire works in the brain. So, uh, it was supposed to help women have a more sexual desire, but, uh, uh, what does that even mean? I mean, more sexual desire randomly, you know, f- <laughs> spontaneously for the mailman or for, or more sexual desire for your beloved person whom you're angry with because he's not taking out the garbage or I don't know the whole idea of, you know, how you measure this, you know, so they would measure it by number of sexual encounters. But, you know, what is that? You know, for one person, a sexual encounter would be, you know, a loving feeling, an embrace, a kiss. For another person, you know, it's the whole enchilada. So, I mean, it's, the whole measurement thing is so confusing and so difficult in the area of sex, sexology and sexual dysfunction.
1: And is your, is your thesis that we have, we have just tried to medicalize the, our sexual lives when actually we needed to have a deeper understanding of the female, especially the
2: female sexuality? Yeah, that is in a nutshell, that is it. And I wouldn't say especially for women. I just think everybody, people don't have any understanding of sexuality, because for for centuries, it was regulated and repressed by religion. And, you know, you were told you, you got married, and then you did it and you had children and everything else was, you know, kind of illegal or immoral or irrational. And and nobody understood it, and so now all of a sudden, uh, you know, the 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 restrictions have subsided, but we're in a new era without adequate education. So I feel like the the loss of religion was kind of replaced by the the health metaphor. The The uh, medicalization area and all sorts of so-called experts and profit-seeking companies rushed in to solve the problem of the people who don't really know much about this. They're going on a kind of idea that it's natural. Well, it should just happen, but it doesn't just happen when the stakes are so high, the expectations are so high, and the preparation is so inadequate. Can I ask a question?
0: I mean, I'm thinking a little bit about evolutionary biology, and you, you touched on this very briefly about, like, this mammalian thing. I think I heard you in an interview talking about this, that we have assumed sex is just this mammalian behavior that is intrinsic and natural. And I think you're saying that actually it's not. But when I think about animal behavior around sex, it's not always, I mean, it's A, it's not always ideal. It seems to be um, often with a lot of conflict between the, the male and female participant in the, the sex act. Sometimes there's really ugly behavior like coercion or, uh, you know, like, like sex in nature is nothing like what we maybe imagine ideal sex to be as a human I'm wondering, like where do we where do we make sense of that? Do you hear my question? Like I'm not articulating it very well, but as a human being, we we do maybe have like this fantasy idea of what we want sexuality to be. And is it realistic?
2: Well, I, I don't know who this we is. You know, I, I think human beings have expectations about sexuality based on their culture, their religion, uh, the time and place that they're living in. And, you know, some people have a very romantic notion. Some people have a a very uh, pragmatic notion. Some people have a very, um, I don't know, uh, there's all kinds of of ways that people can can construe sexuality. Is it supposed to be primarily about love or is it primarily about intense pleasure and sensation and or is it just uh, a means to an end in terms of reproduction i mean people are so different Mm -hmm. let me Mm -hmm. tell you after 30 years as a sex therapist i can tell you that how people feel about being touched being kissed uh about arousal i mean it's just enormously varied and all of that was in new york so and i haven't even you know treated people in morocco or you know yeah
0: i i got interested too you talked about being a sex therapist for i think you said 30 or 40 years and teaching medical students and nursing students um have you have you been keeping up with the type of curricula that are being used in programs for sex therapy these days? Are you familiar yeah, with the influx yeah. of some queer theory and the sex
2: positivity
0: movement? I'm just curious if you could comment on what you've seen change in your field and what do you think about it?
2: Well, I think that it's been taken over by the discourse of consent. Uh that there's a great deal of concern uh, about consent and um, abuse nowadays that was not present when I was doing the teaching. I think in terms of arousal and enjoyment and performance and expectations, that really hasn't changed. Uh, It wasn't very well known. And, you know, there were a few theories and uh, principles But the whole addition now, I I don't know is how I would say that queer theory has gotten involved because that's really about gender rather than sexual relations. Uh, I don't think that um, that's been the problem. The problem, I think, has been uh, hyper concern with consent.
1: How would you like it to go? I can hear there's a lot of criticism and I find it very interesting and yet I part of me thinks surely the likes of Viagra has really helped millions of people. So I am interested in your thoughts on that because I I anticipate you might say yet it brought other issues. And then secondly, I'd love to know where do you think we should have gone and where could we go in our understanding of,
2: of sex? Well, you know, we don't really know the impact of Viagra. We know uh, the public relations wing of the pharmaceutical industry, Pfizer in particular, that manufactures this drug. And now there are several other similar drugs. They make all kinds of claims. But you you would be astonished at the paucity of research on the impact of something that is supposed to be so enormously culture changing. I even tried to do some research. I tried to find subjects uh, who had taken <laughs> Viagra or were taking Viagra that I could interview. How, how do you go about doing that? I mean, this was kind of in the pre-internet era, and I don't really have a lot of confidence in internet research, but that's sort of the way things are going. Uh, but it's really hard to find subjects uh for for sex research. So I don't actually know if it's helped a lot of people. I'm sure that um you know it's like this the research now you look at the discontinuation of prescriptions and so many prescriptions for Viagra are not refilled. And uh we also know that there are unintended side effects To the the taking of Viagra in terms of genital consequences and so on, I won't deviate off into that. So I don't know if it's been a great boon for humankind or not. And could you tell me about your concept around disease, disease mongering?
1: Well, Um, I'll get that,
2: but let me answer your second question, Stella, about what would I like to see? Um, You know, I I really go with this very old-fashioned and trite idea that sex is a biopsychosocial phenomenon. But I re- mean really biopsychosocial, like at every exact second, the bio, the psycho, and the social are interacting. And I feel that that model needs to be taught more. For example, the effects of conditioning, expectation on arousal, on sensation. Uh, People don't do any research on that. So I would get patients all the time who, you know, didn't like kissing. Well, why don't I like kissing? Everyone is supposed to like kissing. And I would say, well, you know, there's nothing natural about kissing. Kissing is a learned activity, and it involves uh, being touched and involves another face being close to you and it involves toleration of lots of things. Let's break it down. And people would start crying and say, but they're kissing in the movies. It's all natural. What's the matter with me? That's the, the problem, Stella, is people don't realize the, the, the complexity of the psycho, the bio, and the social. Wow. I think that's
1: a really good
0: point. I've often wondered, like, who invented this maneuver where, like, two people put their hot, funky mouths together and, like, put their tongues in each other's mouths. Like, I mean, maybe this is a post-COVID realization, but I'm like, there is something a little icky about it. Um, So I think it's just funny. Um, But, you know, I'm also thinking about, I think it was maybe a, a book by Esther Perel or something that I read about just that sensuality and intimacy is so much more than just, like, the act where two bodies come together. It is, you know, I think she refers to, like, the entire process of, like, the anticipation leading up to the date or the encounter or the thinking about the other person or, like, figuring out what you're going to wear. Like, there's, there's so much broader... Uh, of a view we can take around what intimacy means what is sexuality and we tend to look at it in this very mechanistic way like it is the act of this organ and that organ coming together but I mean what you're talking about Leonore almost reminds me of how we think about gender exploratory therapy that we look at the person as a whole person in a context and trying to understand how did this distress around their gender, for example, arise and using the biopsychosocial model. So I think we, we need to, I think what you're saying is we need to look at sexuality in the same way and like reconnect it to all of the complicated human aspects of how we interact with the world around us, with people in our lives, with ourselves, with our bodies, with our desires, with our sensations, like there's much more to it than just having an orgasm, which is, where where do you think that idea came from? Like, why do you think we, has there ever been a time or has there ever been a, a place where sexuality you think is given its proper contextual due?
2: Sexuality continually changes because the culture continually changes. Certainly nowadays with the decline of uh, laws against censorship, with the rise of the internet, the, the, the water we swim in has completely changed, so sexuality has changed. Expectation, I agree, expectation is one of the most important elements and the assumptions that people make that sex is a natural act. You know, I wrote this book called Sex is Not a Natural Act because that was the major insight that I felt I had, that this is, this is not dictated by instinct or anything like that, that this is a complicated uh, interaction of the psychological, the social, uh, and so on. And, you know, I think the trouble with, with the gender... Angle now is the politics uh, have become so intense and so um, uh, intrusive that it's impossible almost to step back and try to take any sort of intellectual perspective on this topic. And I, I'm fortunate that I spent all of these years trying to unpack sexuality and realizing how complicated it was so that I can now import that that uh, insight into this other field otherwise you know it's it's really hard when people are shooting at you from all sides to take a intellectual dispassionate perspective
0: how did you get interested in gender and and like how did this come across your radar and
2: what parallels do you see well, the field of sexology uh, that I was in during the 70s, 80s, 90s, and so on, was in, included uh, the discussion of gender dysphoria and transsexualism and intersexuality. And that was part of it. It was just a very small, vanishingly small uh, area because there were so few um, Patients and there were so few researchers, uh, and it was, you know, so at the International Academy of Sex Research that I belonged to for so many years, where I met all these people that you've been interviewing or been hearing about. uh, There were all these panels and papers on uh, transsexualism, and I even uh, published a couple of papers myself, following up post-operative um patients because i was working in a urology department and uh that's what we did but we're talking you know few and and far between so when i was working in that field i uh co-directed a clinic for the study of sex and gender um because they just went together like you know peanut butter and jelly at the time i'm trying to
1: think now how to kind of Bring in the 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 point that you had made earlier, which I'm dying to ask you about, which is um how you how that you were at the conference where they changed the name from the Harry Benjamin Gender Dysphoria International Association to to WPATH. I think that was around about
2: two thousand and six or so. No, actually, I I think it might have been nineteen seventy nine. Well, that was when it was formed. That was when the Harry Benjamin was was, formed. That's right. Were you at that? I was at that one. I was not there where they changed it to WPATH because that was a whole other generation of people who had a whole different agenda and were coming already from the uh you know the international classification systems and who and they were on a mission to uh create a field of sexual health and a whole language of sexual health that would be um i don't know would be destigmatized the goal was to destigmatize everything that was kind of long after my time i was in the stigmatized time where you know, you had a problem, we called it a problem. And I was a licensed treater of problems and people came to me to get treatment for their problems. I didn't feel they were stigmatized. They didn't feel they were stigmatized. It was a whole different ball game. But the, the W path thinking, the anti-stigmatization thinking that all came out of kind of the gay and lesbian rights movement. And, uh, as it were, infiltrated sexology. So back in 79, at the formation of the Habigda, as we called it, the Harry Benjamin International Gender Dysphoria Association, uh, there were a small number of people and uh, a small number of patients and a small number of professionals.
1: And were there were there what we might call activists? Were there any activists then or Was it more delineated? There
2: were no activists then. And back at that that time, there were no uh, gender dysphoric participants. There were no uh, professionals who themselves self-defined as transsexual. I mean, the word transgender didn't even exist back then. Uh, There were... um, there were certainly, you know, out in the real world, you know, where sexuality lives out in the world, there were plenty of um, people who were actively involved in, let's say, cross-dressing associations, um, magazines, fairs, uh, you know, and there would be occasional visitors from that real world, just like there would be visitors from the world of prostitution and pornography to uh, speak to sexologists. But this, you know, this was not regarded. I mean, we were there to do science. And so um, to involve the kind of commercial popular world of crossdressers uh, was not really on the radar at the time. And and the activists, you know, uh, I hate to tell you, I was one of the activists because feminism was the activism at the time. What about women? Remember women? Don't forget women. Think about women. You know, that was the activism at the time.
0: You, When we got on the call before we started recording, you know, you said, I have been mired in these issues for a really long time and they just keep popping up in different ways. And obviously you've been doing this work for decades. Um, Do you think that we will ever take an appropriate look at the role over medicalization and like what you call disease mongering? Do you think there will ever be a time where we're able to look with a little more clarity and I guess humanity at these questions? Or do you think we're doomed to repeat this
2: pattern forever? Well, I think medicalization is a, a huge social trend that has both um, profitability aspects that go on and on because everybody wants to make a buck and you can always figure out a new way to make a buck and sex is a very profitable area. So medicalizing sex because of the profitability angle that's gonna go on and on. But the irony, and I have to say this is a this is a great irony, has to do with the political input that there are now political forces that are in favor of medicalizing as well. And they've changed. I mean the players change all the time. So the the forces now that want insurance coverage, let's say, for all sorts of medical procedures that we at one point might have called elective, might have called cosmetic, now they're regarded as uh, medically necessary. So that's a form of medicalization. The insurance industry, along with the pharmaceutical industry, is a big, big player. I mean, really big, bigger than the fingers on all of our hands and feet multiplied. They are on the job all the time enlarging their world. So until, you know, we get the money out of the thing and until we get the politics out of the thing, I don't think that we can anticipate any sort of, you know, clear-eyed view Medicalization is is just huge, and it's been promoted by many people for many good purposes. I mean, the world is has less disease and pain and suffering in it than it did before we had medicine, right? Uh, people are living longer, and they're living uh, better, and things are getting treated. There's no question about it. So, you know, the growth of medicine is a great thing, but like so many things, it gets um, corrupted or it gets, um, you know. uh, Commercialized. uh, Yeah, commercialized, it's overwhelmed by forces so that uh, in order to make medicines now, you have to deal with an industry that is gigantic, hyper-gigantic. Uh, and has forces of persuasion at its beck and call uh, that influence people. We have direct-to-consumer advertising. You don't have that over in in Ireland, Stella, but in the United States and in New Zealand, the only two places on Earth where we have direct-to-consumer advertising, our airwaves are filled 24-7 with commercial promotions for medicines, for uh, surgeries, for all kinds of ways to improve yourself. So, I mean, people want to improve themselves. And we have, of course, now the Internet, which tells you you're no good and you're ugly. And so you even want to more want to improve yourself. And we can go in that direction. But the answer is no, we're not going to escape medicalization as long as the forces promoting it are so powerful and have so much incentive.
1: And if you if you look at yourself and you're talking about the medicalization of, of sex and then it it moved into the medicalization of gender did you did you watch that and almost see it coming because you
2: were so immersed in the medicalization of sex the answer is no. You know what I did observe was the was the commercialization of, what What can I call it, of imagery, of sexually, I mean, sex is, I read the New York Times every day, whether that's good for me or not, I don't know. But, you know, the, the newspapers, magazines over the course of the 90s and then the aughts and then, of course, the teens, they just got full of fashion and makeup, and celebrity, and television, and movies, all of which celebrated uh, something other than heteronormativity, God forbid. And they did that, of course, because it was new and it was different. But at a certain point, it became a drumbeat that was weird. And that's what I noticed, you couldn't open the New York Times without there being a layout on boys wearing dresses, boys wearing makeup, you know, girls with shaved heads, uh, tragic stories, uh, celebratory stories, whatever. That's what I noticed first was the media mania about portraying something other than heteronormativity. I I thought you were going to
1: say when you were talking there about the newspapers, I thought you were going to bring in, and I was nodding vigorously thinking you were going to bring in that there was an emphasis on looks and on vanity and on uh, and that you swerve left into was actually all about anti-heteronormativity and I would have thought there was just an extraordinary emphasis, maybe I'm wrong, but on looks and branding and people branding if you follow me and how beautiful they were from the 90s onwards i i just not convinced it was there as much before i thought newspapers were newspapers and then they turned into these pseudo magazines yes.
2: i think you have you have a truth there stella that uh news became into entertainment and we can certainly track that uh in the 80s and the 90s when Um, you know it was just there was too much competition and so they had to get into more popular topics but you know wanting to look good and uh, comparing yourself to other people I mean New York is the fashion capital of of the planet here Uh, certainly we were never free for a minute of you know what's the color for spring and you know what's the skirt length for fall and the newspapers were always full of that, but they were, they were kind of like conventional, and you focused on the material and the colors. All of a sudden, Shazam, you focused on weird, weird the weirder the better.
0: It's been really interesting to think about how all of these things relate to one another. And I think touching on the way the way consumerism also changes and how we can be marketed different things at different times. I think that's what's so valuable about your perspective. And I know, Stella, you emphasize this a lot too. Like, what about the historical context? At this moment in time, what does it mean? And um, it's it's really interesting to think about how there, there are different meanings in what we believe is valuable and worth buying and worth buying into. So, um, Leonor, is there anywhere you'd like our audience to go to check out more about your work
2: or um, look at some of the projects you've been involved in? Well, the entire medicalization of sexual dysfunction story uh, is on the website newviewcampaign.org, which is now kind of an archive, a frozen archive of everything that we did in terms of media and video and conference programs and publications. And uh, I, I like to think that it's a, it's a kind of example of scholar activism where you have a a group of people who have both professional and intellectual training and and interests, but who also want to make a difference in in the public discourse. So that's where I would send people. People could read "Sex is Not a Natural Act." Uh, I do think that consumerism is a key is a key element, and the way that we are manipulated by capitalism to want certain things in life that we think are somehow natural and God-given and you need history to understand how people didn't used to want these things and are we really better off now? That's the question. Whoa. Thanks a million, Leonore. That was
1: fascinating, really fascinating.
0: Yeah,
2: thank you so much. I've enjoyed it.
0: Thanks for joining us this week on Gender, A Wider Lens. This podcast is sponsored by Rhyme and Genspect, and listener support means
1: a lot to us. The best way to help is to subscribe and review us on iTunes. Follow us on social media, and if you'd like to become a patron, you'll have access to weekly transcripts of the show, special Q&As, and you can join our listener community. Just go to our link tree. That's linktr.ee slash widerlenspod.
0: Our discussions are for educational
1: purposes only and are not intended as a substitute
0: for mental health services.